We learned some time ago about this CIA-backed coup, but few of us know how badly it undermined U.S. relations with Iran. It's actually been an open secret for decades, but for the first time now, the CIA has released documents that show its role in the 1953 coup. That is the coup that toppled Iran's democratically elected prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh had moved to nationalize oil production in Iran. Well, the U.S. was concerned at the time that that would mean a victory for the Soviets in the Cold War. So shortly after his election, the CIA began to plan his overthrow, teaming up with Britain's MI6. Now, the CIA, we've seen it spelling out its involvement in a series of newly declassified documents. These are the actual documents marked confidential, top secret, eyes only. It's the stuff of crime and mystery and spy novels. This one talks about the security implications of CIA letters of commendation for those who served in that operation codenamed TP Ajax. And this one, dated July 22nd, 1953, almost a month before the coup, it talks about preparing an official American statement to follow a successful coup. You know, this is the thing about the coup. It's the major fork in the road. One of the biggest forks in the road in the Middle East. It, it, That's Puya Ali Maham, historian at Massachusetts Institute of Technology and an expert on revolutionary movements and Western imperialism in the Middle East. He's the author of the book, Contesting the Iranian Revolution, The Green Uprisings. He'll be breaking down the history of how imperial U.S. foreign policy some 80 years ago set the stage for its contentious relationship with Iran today. It set in motion a series of events that we are still, people in the region and the United States are still dealing with, right? This is the this is the terrible thing about U.S. policies, right? They have such an impact on the recipients, recipient countries of those policies. So Iran had a burgeoning democracy, right? It had been struggling for this democracy for about 50, 60, 70 years. Iran had looked to the United States as the way Americans like to see themselves. Americans like to see their country as this beacon of hope, the, the oldest democracy in the world, all that stuff. So the Iranians actually bought into that rhetoric. And, they, and the, the Iranian premier, in its struggle against the British, the outgoing colonial power, looked to the United States for support. And of course, the United States was, at the time, under Truman, was a little bit sympathetic towards the Iranians, but had just got done fighting World War II with the British and wasn't about to throw its wartime ally under the bus for these wily natives over there in the third world. <laughs> and I say that as, a, as satire, right? But then there was a change of administration in the United States and Eisenhower came to power. And Eisenhower was your typical, you know, imperial Cold War warrior. It was through Eisenhower that the United States and the British overthrew Iran's democratically elected government. And then once you now have a coup government, the coup government lacks legitimacy. The population knew that the United States was behind this coup government. They knew that it was a coup that was not really backed by the people, although everyone tried to present it as an Iranian uprising. It wasn't. There were Iranian actors in the thing, but it was all part of a U.S. plan and conspiracy that was orchestrated through the U.S. embassy. Ironically, that was the very embassy Iranian protesters stormed in protest of the U.S.-backed Shah's brutality. History usually tells the story of the present and wise people use that history to make better decisions about the future. That hasn't been the case for American foreign policy when it comes to Iran. People are in the streets of Tehran protesting the brutality of their government. Chants like death to the Supreme Leader are heard in the crowds. Hundreds of people have been injured by law enforcement 
some even executed. CNN reports that many women who've taken to the streets in protest of the repressive hijab mandate have been sexually assaulted. These protests are complicating Washington's ability to negotiate re-entry into the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. You may know it as the Iran deal. Namely, the White House doesn't want to undermine protesters by interfering. Another geopolitical issue impacting talks has been Iran's support of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Tehran has supplied military aid to Moscow, including drones that have been used against the Ukrainian military and civilians. That's a whole nother subject, all its own, and we won't really get into it in this series. Although the White House has meddled in Iranian affairs in the past, the Biden administration is very aware of this history and doesn't want any progress made by protesters to be seen as U.S. interference. But what if I told you the Biden administration's problems are the result of his predecessor's failures to simply respect the agency of the Iranian people? Of course, it's fine to see common ground with countries, but Washington has often centered its financial interests above the will of the people of Iran, and those chickens have come home to roost. In this episode of Liberating Iran, Puya will walk us through the events that led up to the 1953 coup, the 1979 revolution, and how these events led to the United States' contentious relationship with Iran. He'll tell us how his own journey and that of his parents from Iran to the U.S. informs his work, and in turn, how his scholarship should inform our insights into his country of birth. Let's get into a brief history of Iran pre-1953 so that we can have some context for what Puya is going to tell us about the past 80 years. Before the 1979 revolution that established the present-day Islamic Republic of Iran, the country is known as the Imperial State of Iran under the Pahlavi Dynasty, which is the last royal Iranian dynasty that ruled between 1925 until it was forced from power in 1979. First, you need to know that the Brits and Russians were imperial players in Iran at the turn of the 20th century. There were a lot of events and moving pieces happening between 1900 and 1921, but we won't deep dive into that for this episode. What you need to know is that the British wanted to wrestle political control from the Russian imperial government and later the Soviets. So London decided to make a move to take control of Tehran. In 1921, British General Edmund Ironside promoted 42-year-old Colonel Reza Khan to lead the British-run Persian Kazakh Brigade, which eventually raided Tehran and overthrew the Qajar ruling dynasty. Two years later, the rest of the country was under British control and Reza became prime minister. Now, around this time, a newly elected parliamentarian by the name of Mohammad Mossadegh was working to move Iran away from Western control. He didn't approve of the parliament's move to appoint Reza as the Shah because he felt it undermined the 1906 Iranian constitution. He did praise Reza's achievements as prime minister, but encouraged him to respect the constitution and stay in that post. But the Majlis, also known as the parliament, didn't agree. They got rid of Ahmad Shah Qajar in December of 1925 and declared Reza the new monarch of the imperial state of Persia and the first Shah of the Pahlavi dynasty. Mossadegh left politics soon after that. The Brits did all of this for the sole purpose of controlling Iran's oil fields 
and expanding its empire into the Middle East. Now it's important to note that Iran was a buffer between Russia and British India. Much of the imperial policy revolved around protecting their prized Indian colony. Let's talk about Reza's use of the name Pahlavi. Unlike the dynasties before him and monarchical rulers in England, Russia, and other places, Reza didn't come from royal blood. So he took the name of the Pahlavi language to strengthen his pre-Islamic nationalist credentials. At first, Reza wanted the country to be a republic akin to the Kamalist Republic in neighboring Turkey, but he ditched those plans after the clerics and the Brits opposed him. Leading up to Reza's rise to power, Iran had signed capitulation agreements with foreign states, including Britain, that basically gave them immunity from any fuckery they did within its borders, including civil and criminal acts. But after establishing his powers, Reza began revoking the regional powers of the Brits with regional rulers, positioning himself as a top leader to deal with. Reza also started claiming oil-rich islands in the Gulf the Brits said belonged to them. He also pressured the Brits to stop issuing currency through the British-owned Imperial Bank of Persia. To be sure, Reza's power was never really that strong. He wasn't respected by the Brits because he was their guy and the Iranian people didn't respect him for that very reason. Meanwhile, Iranians were building a democracy or at least trying to build a democracy, right? The office of the prime minister was created in 1906 with each parliament having varying degrees of success that helped wrestle the state away from Western control. Meanwhile, Mossadegh was elected to parliament in 1944, three years after the Brits forced Reza to abdicate in favor of his son, Mohammed Reza Pahlavi. Mossadegh became the head of the political organization National Front of Iran created in 1949, which he founded with other like-minded politicos who wanted to establish democracy and above all, sovereignty. They basically wanted to kick foreigners out of Iranian state affairs. But he left politics once again after some legislation he pushed through parliament failed to pass. Now, it's important to note that Iran became a target of the Soviet Union and the West because of their oil reserves. Simply speaking, Wars are very expensive and they need lots of money and exorbitant amounts of oil to keep the war machine going. Iran was an ideal country to target for that purpose. Mossadegh returned to politics to become prime minister in 1952 after parliament appointed him on a vote of 79 to 12. The Shah, Mohammad Reza, appointed him as a formality. He accepted the nomination on the premise that the parliament would accept his push to nationalize the oil company, which caused some friction between him and Mohammed Reza. But their real beef with each other was more about who was the head of state than oil nationalization. Mossadegh was taking center stage of Iranian political life, and the two began battling over who was commander in chief. Mossadegh eventually resigned over their differences and riots ensued, but Mohammed Reza, the Shah was pressured by the Iranian people to reappoint him. During all of this, the Brits appealed to the UN, hoping the body would force Iran to end nationalization of oil. The International Court of Justice ruled, however, they had no jurisdiction in the matter and ended a year-long injunction, according to the New York Times. The Brits said that the court's ruling was merely a technicality and that they would pursue other legal methods to restore their control over Iranian oil production. 
In March of 1953, the CIA began planning for a possible covert coup that would bring a government to Tehran favorable to the U.S. and Great Britain. By April of that year, a study entitled Factors Involved in the Overthrow of Mossadegh concluded that a coup was possible. In May, British and CIA intel officials met in Cyprus to stage the coup. U.S. spies in Tehran launched a gray propaganda campaign to discredit the Mossadegh government. Mossadegh was already suspicious that the British and American governments were planning to remove him, so he held a referendum calling for the Iranian parliament to be dissolved. The Shah signed a decree on August 13th of 1953, dismissing Mossadegh and word of his support of a coup spread around Iran. Two days later, the CIA-backed coup began, but it didn't start off well at all. Mossadegh was tipped off. Fazloha Zahidi, his would-be replacement, went into hiding, and the Shah fled to Baghdad. On August 17th, in a second coup attempt masterminded by Kermit Roosevelt, Zahidi announces that he is the prime minister and CIA agents put out photographs of royal decrees dismissing Mossadegh and approving Zahidi which the Shah confirms. And we know that Iranians knew that the U.S. had a role in all this because six months later, when Vice President Nixon, at the time, Vice President Nixon came to Iran to endorse the coup government, there was protests at the University of Tehran and three students died. That has since become National Student Day, Day of Resistance. So there's, there's that. And then, you know, once, once you have a government that you install that lacks legitimacy, you don't want to see that government fall. So the United States... And the Israelis helped build Iran's secret police, the Savak. And the interesting thing is, and this is, my students get blown away when I tell this to them, but it's true. The United States um, had trained the Iranian secret police and literally in Nazi torture techniques, right? So if, if, if you've ever seen like a film like Dr. Zhivago or something like that, you'll, you'll know that it's not just a movie that when, when World War II was ending, the, the Soviets and especially the Americans began recruiting a lot of the senior Nazi scientists because they were really, they were evil, but they were evil geniuses who did ridiculous things to their captives. But in doing so, they learned a lot about human anatomy and stuff like that. So now you have the Americans and the Soviets recruiting them because they knew that at the end of the Cold War, at the end of World War II, there's a, a new conflict emerging between the Soviet Union and the United States. So they began competing for generals and, and scientists. And they learned a lot about these torture techniques that they then trained Iranian secret police. We turn to the Shah's secret police force, his FBI and CIA combined. They are called Savak, and they have a reputation for brutality. He acknowledged that he has Savak agents on duty in the United States. And they are there for the purpose of checking up on Iranian students. Checking up on anybody who becomes affiliated with circles, organizations hostile to my country. In other words, you're saying you do what every country does. Sure, If torture not? is necessary, you torture. Not the torture in the old sense of torturing people, twisting their arms and doing this and that. But there are intelligent way, ways of uh, questioning now. So then, you know, you have, this is, the, the coup happened in 53, Savak was instituted, the secret police was instituted in 57. And then in 1963, 64, you see a, a nonviolent 
religious uprising, religious, a clergy-led uprising that occurred. Again, the free world is troubled by trouble in Iran. Regarding with anxiety the rioting and plots said to be aimed at overthrowing Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, a ruler who has long been regarded as one of the West's best friends in the Middle East. Tehran, Shiraz, and the holy city of Qom were the scenes of the most violent disturbances, street battling in which 20 were killed and hundreds injured. Iran's army proved loyal to its ruler and in two days had the situation in hand. And it was because it was nonviolent, uh, you would think that it would have, you know, the, the outcome would be different, but it was nonviolent and it was met with the regime's bullets. So we don't, really, we don't really actually know how many people died in this, but some say several hundred, some say several thousand, right? But this changed the, this changed the trajectory of Iran's political life. Once people understood that peaceful protest was futile and that you can't change the system from within, they began to opt for more radical measures like a total revolution that was going to do away with the whole system. So the coup in 1953 and, and Salvat made it so that by the mid to late seventies, Iranians had lost faith, in it, lost faith in the entire system and they understood that revolution was the only means by which they could rid themselves of this oppressive government. The revolution then when it took place, was met with counter-revolutionary invasion of a US-backed invasion of Iraq into Iran. These are the series of events that are linked to the coup. Coup, uprising 63, revolution 79, Iran-Iraq war 80s. Let's double back and focus on the 1979 revolution. We know it was the hostage crisis. Wording Puya says are biased in their own right in that context. If you look at the hostage crisis, right? First of all, we call it the hostage crisis, right? That it, it kind of fits into our dominant discourses as it pertains to Iran, Muslims in the Middle East, right? Iranians probably, if they were going to describe it in English, they would describe it as the storming of the U.S. Embassy, right? That's a very different, maybe French revolutionary feel to it that um, would, would just the phrasing just changes the entire paradigm. But the preceding history that's really relevant that's removed from this history is, is that it was through that same embassy 26 years before the Iranian revolution, that the United States and the British overthrew Iran's democratically elected government. And so that's really important to understand because it's connected to 1979. When Iranians then stormed or seized the U.S. embassy, they did so because they had really good reason to believe that that same U.S. embassy was now conspiring against the Iranian revolution. And, and that's not, again, that's not something that the U.S. only does with Iran. The United States is a strong counter-revolutionary force in much of the world, except for when these uprisings or revolutions happen, happens in enemy countries. None of this history is contextualized when we hear about breakdowns of the Iran deal, for example. How often does our mainstream media question Washington's faults and failings for why our relations with Iran are so poor? That lack of introspection taints our views and makes us less informed to encourage a better foreign policy approach. Puya's mention of the Iraq war resonates with me because my mother, a 23-year U.S. Army veteran, participated in the first Gulf War. I remember when I was in sixth grade, our middle school held a special program acknowledging the parents of kids who were fighting in the war and I just broke down crying. And look, I'm not really a person who easily sheds tears and I can 
hardly remember a handful of times in my life when I really cried. But I do think that moment was one of many that built an unwitting bias in me that favored the US. My mom is fighting to keep us safe so America's war must be justified, I thought. So look, I was a black kid in Detroit and I understand anti-blackness in America and our country's history of racism against black people. But what I wasn't aware of at that time was that during the media coverage of the Iraq war and the way that uh, the grownups were talking about it, I was building up a bias against people from the Middle East. So I'm pretty sure that those unchecked biases over the years really built up some kind of mindset in me to accept Bush's acts of evil remarks 10 years later when I was a 22-year-old college student. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil, arming to threaten the peace of the world. Another line of thought that I've always heard about Iran is that it's destabilizing the region. I'll just be honest with you. I never knew exactly what that meant, but Puyo broke it down for me. I think the first place to start would be the discourses that the dominant Western media kind of use, right? They always say Iran is this destabilizing force. Again, to, and they normalize other destabilizing forces, right? So for instance, Iran is seen as meddling in Syria, as, as supporting the Syrian government. And the Syrian government is indeed a ruthless dictatorship, right? Um, but there's history behind as to why the Iranian government wants to see this government in Syria endure the storm that it's been in. And part of it goes back to the Iran-Iraq war. When Iraq invaded Iran, every country in the world, more or less, supported Iraq's invasion of the country, right? The, the French, the West Germans, the Soviet Union, the British, the United States, and most Arab heads of state supported it. So for instance, when Iraq used chemical weapons on Iranians, the United States didn't want to veto a resolution against it because that would just be bad, right? We'd be condoning weapon, chemical weapons use. So the United States just made sure it was never tabled when the Iranians uh, objected to the chemical weapons use at the United Nations. The United States just made sure it never got the tabled so that they wouldn't have to veto it. So, but the one ally that Iran had in this war was Syria. And there's pipelines, Iraqi pipelines that run through Syria, right? And Syria shut those pipelines down, which meant that Iraq was now dependent on Persian Gulf shipping lanes to export its oil during the war. And, and exporting oil is really important because you gotta be able to sell to make money to then buy weapons to fund your war effort. And Iran is the largest country on the Persian Gulf. It has the largest coastline along the Persian Gulf. And therefore, Iraqi ships were vulnerable to Iranian attack. And, and you know, the first thing Iraq did when it invaded Iran was bomb Iran's biggest oil installation in Abadan. So this, this is how this war played out. And, you know, Syria cutting off that oil, that oil pipeline was huge for Iranians, right? And on top of that, Iran was able to use Syrian air airspace to be able to target Iraq and and basically anywhere in the country. What I didn't know as a 12-year-old boy or 22-year-old man was that White House foreign policy had created a very justified siege mentality about Tehran in the United States. Before the U.S. invaded Iraq in defense of Kuwait, Baghdad's leader, Saddam Hussein, was a U.S. ally. Saddam feared the Ayatollah Khomeini, the first supreme leader who led Iran's 1979 revolution, would push his ideology into Iraq. 
Iran, a theocracy, is made up of mostly Shia Muslims, whom Saddam felt would encourage Iraq's Shia population against the Ba'athist government of Baghdad, which was secular and dominated by Sunni Muslims. The United States, still reeling from the embassy hostage crisis and pissed at the revolution deposed the Shah, had no problem supporting Saddam with military aid and intelligence. Washington also ignored Baghdad's use of chemical weapons against Iranian forces and civilians, as Puya mentioned. Iraq needed the support because just years earlier, the United States and Israel had sent military aid to Iran when it was still under the Shah. So Iranians had the technological upper hand and had a larger population from which to draw upon. But the infusion of US aid and ignoring chemical weapons use often turned the tide to Iraq's advantage. The two sides eventually agreed to a ceasefire in 1988, but Washington ended up cutting its nose to spite its face. Iraq had long wanted to be the regional power in the Middle East and was looking for any opportunity to do it. That was one of its key motives behind Iraq's invasion of Iran. Iraq had borrowed billions of dollars from Kuwait to fight Iran, but did not pay it back, which pissed off the Kuwaitis, obviously. Iraqi nationalists also claimed that Kuwait was always part of Iraq, but only became independent because the British negotiating via the Ottoman Convention of 1913, which it pulled out of during the decline of the Ottoman Empire. Another issue is that the Iraqis claimed the U.S. was neutral in the conflict, and that belief supposedly left Baghdad with the impression Washington gave them the green light to invade. So they did and occupied Kuwait for seven months until the UN-backed coalition under Operation Desert Storm liberated the country. What we aren't often told is that America turned a blind eye to war crimes for its own gain, or so-called gain. The Iran-Iraq war claimed more than 500,000 lives, the most ever casualties between two nations that aren't considered so-called economic powers. I hope you've been enjoying the episode so far. We want to thank a few folks who've made this series a reality. First, shout out to Plowshares Fund, which has been a great financial backer of this project. We also want to thank Outrider Foundation, which supports multimedia storytelling about nuclear threats and climate change. Learn more at outrider.org. We also encourage you to go to Apple Podcasts and become paid subscribers. Please look for the subscriber box on Apple Podcasts and sign up for bonus episodes and full interviews with our guests. Your financial support also helps us keep the show going. We spend lots of hours every week booking interviews, fact-checking, and editing the shows for your listening pleasure. All right, back to the show. I'm from America, gotta go get this job. Hold on, putting no makeup for this fake ass facade. Yeah. Bygones be bygones, the bygones and spray. Tired of biting my tongue, I see what I gotta say. One of the common narratives about Iran is that it meddles in the affairs of its neighbors or that it's a destabilizing force in the region. Very little is discussed about the historical hostilities of Iran's neighbors towards the leadership of Tehran or the U.S. military presence around the country. Before the White House withdrew its forces from Afghanistan, there were roughly 60,000 U.S. troops surrounding Tehran, 
according to the Australian Broadcasting Channel. 13,000 are stationed in Kuwait, another 13,000 are in Qatar, and 7,000 are in Bahrain. Some 2,500 are stationed in Turkey, a NATO member. We also send billions of dollars and weapons to Israel every year. And no one labels that as meddling. And then, you know, you have things like in Yemen, where Iranians are accused of meddling in Yemen. But I mean, I, you know, again, like the assumption that Iranians are meddling in Yemen, but the Saudi bombing of Yemen is not meddling, right? The Saudis have been bombing the poorest country in the Middle East for, for six years now. And that's, Western media doesn't cover it. Uh, I think I think the death toll right now is 300,000 Yemenis have died from this war, and many of them have died from starvation. None of that is really discussed. It's like Iranian meddling. And and I think actually when it came to Yemen, it could have been a self-fulfilling prophecy because anytime there's a sh you know Shiites who rise up, because Shiites are historically, the, the minority sect in Islam, are historically oppressed in the region. When they rise up, the Saudis, the Americans, everyone kind of sees an Iranian hand in it. Because Iran is like the quintessential Shiite majority country. And Yemen, I think it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Look, no one is saying that Iran is 100% innocent and that the leadership doesn't operate in bad faith with its neighbors. Of course not. Puya isn't an apologist for the Iranian government. He just believes the West understanding of Iran is very one-sided and ignores U.S. culpability between the two nations' relationship. And as far as I'm concerned, that makes a lot of sense. The, the the United States, especially the older generation, Trump and his entire administration and Biden, his entire gen, uh, administration, they see Iran through the prism of the seizure of the U.S. embassy. Iranians on November 4th, 1979, in the heyday, in the throes of the Iranian revolution, seized the U.S. embassy and held its personnel captive for 444 days, Right. The interesting thing is, is that um, this this singular event is removed from history. There's no preceding history behind it, right? So Americans, all they saw was angry, bearded, or covered bearded men and covered women just in front of the innocent U.S. embassy, screaming "Death to America!" And Americans didn't know about the preceding history, and they and that's typical, right? When when events happen in the Middle East that are that target the United States, we always we always feel really like, oh, why are they, why are they, why do they hate us? Why do they, why do these wily, you know, savages hate us? What did we do? Like, and then the, the answer always is they hate us for our freedom. Oh yeah. I definitely remember those words back from 2002. Americans are asking, why do they hate us? They hate what they see right here in this chamber, a democratically elected government. Their leaders are self-appointed. They hate our freedoms, our freedom of religion, our freedom of speech. Puya was born into a middle-class family in Tehran in 1981, two years into the Iranian revolution and just a year into the Iran-Iraq war. His maternal grandfather was a retired two-star general for the Iranian armed forces before the revolution. Half of his family was very hostile towards the revolution though. His grandfather went into hiding for about a year in a trap room in his house until the Shah died in exile of cancer. He was smuggled out of the country shortly after that. By that time, much of Puya's family was already in the United States studying at The Ohio State University, 
and rendezvoused with them in Columbus, Ohio. His dad got a job in the computer industry. He had studied mathematics at the University of Tehran and got a gig as a program analyst with IBM in Iran, which was building network systems for the National Iranian Oil Company. After residing in Columbus for six months, that resume helped him get a job in Southern California, where Puya was raised. I would say that there's really two type two different philosophies amongst Iranians in Southern California. If you were raised in the U.S., either you would want your what ends up happening is a lot of parents would speak to their children in English, really, so they could practice their English. And so the the kids grew up speaking uh, English and 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 in language is the cornerstone of culture. So they grew up speaking English and are really in tune with their culture. Uh, my parents spoke to me in Persian. Uh, and, and this happens sometimes parents speak to the kids in Persian so that the kids grow up speaking Persian. I just think my parents were much more comfortable in Persian. So they spoke to me in, in my native language. Um, and, I, and I grew up basically as a Persian speaker, but with a lot of broken Persian. I would incorporate a lot of English words uh, into my Persian. So um, it was like that. I didn't actually realize it until high school where I met Iranians for the first time in school. I didn't grow up amongst Iranians. And, and people find that hard to believe because Orange County today has a lot, a lot of Iranians. But where I grew up in Orange County in the 80s and early 90s, there was none. So I was typically the only Middle Eastern kid in my school, maybe a couple other Middle Eastern kids uh, who were not Iranian. Uh, they were maybe Arab, um, Saudi or Palestinian or Palestinians from Saudi. And, um, you know, I, I, I think one of the reasons why I was always kind of interested in history uh, well, I wasn't really, I was interested in history that was not taught at school because the history that I was taught in school was, it was, you know, politically programmed U.S. education. And, and am I, I tell my students today, I'm like, you guys do not understand. We live in a very ideological state. Um, so people often talk in the United States of other countries and how they have these ideology, ideologies. And, and the assumption here is that we don't have an ideology because it's pretty normalized, but we do have an idea. It's Eurocentric, it's white supremacist, uh, and that bleeds into its English courses and its uh, history courses. So I actually never really connected with that stuff. And then I went to college at UC Berkeley, and, and what happened was on the eve of my um, start at, at UC Berkeley was when the Palestinian, the second Palestinian uprising began, the Al-Aqsa Intifada. And it was then that I started asking questions. You know, why? I, I, I never cared about the news, never listened to the news. This is pre-internet time. And so right when the Intifada was beginning was when the internet was also taking hold. So I would actually start reading the news for the first time because it was on the Yahoo front page, little news headlines. Who, have, who visits Yahoo anymore? But back then it was AOL and Yahoo. And you would see the little news headlines in the box in the corner and I'd click on it, and, and it was very obvious to me that America was pro-Israeli. It was very obvious to me that Israel held the power in this negotiation. And I started asking questions, and I, I could start finding answers that were not in school textbooks, but they were online. I definitely share Puya's sentiments about America's secondary education system. Studies consistently reveal how underserved students of color are. Much of the U.S. curriculum centers whiteness. The difference between Puya and me is that I didn't grow up in 1980s Orange County. I grew up in Detroit, the biggest black city in the United States for more than several decades. I had a black mayor, mostly black teachers, and a 90% percent 
black city of more than a million people. Well, at least up until the early 2000s. Detroit was an epicenter of black resistance with the 1967 uprisings being the climax of it. I went to an HBCU where I was able to enjoy being around my culture and my people. Puyo went to Berkeley, the liberal bastion of the West Coast, where he found his voice for his eventual scholarship. Everything, I started uh, taking courses in Middle East history, Middle East languages. Uh, and I took this one course, a uh, political science course on the Iranian, it's called literally called the Iranian Revolution and its impact in the Middle East. And this was the first time I was taking a course that was directly related to my personal history. I wasn't reading about Christopher Columbus anymore or you know, Western civilization. I was, ta- I was taking a course that essentially explained to me what happened to, that caused our exodus to here. Uh, and, I, and I approached it with a very much an open mind, right? I didn't, I didn't come to that class with this pro-monarchy baggage that a lot of my family members have, right? Because my father wasn't like that. My father was very left. And um, it was this course that kind of changed my trajectory. It was this course, this is also in the time of 9-11 where I felt Americans should be taking these courses. And then once I took this course, the course was no longer offered because the professor there was not a permanent faculty member. So he just didn't, he wasn't available. They didn't hire him to teach it again. So I was, despite being someone that was very stage fright, I instituted the course myself because Berkeley is one of the few schools where student undergrads can uh, institute a course without pay, of course, as long as you could get a senior faculty member and a department chair from the same department. And that department has to be relevant to the course. So I couldn't get like a physics professor to sign off. so I had to institute my own course and it was actually a, a struggle to find um, an instructor who was willing to put his name on a course about Iran, right? Iran is like the most demonized country in the United States, one of the most. And so it was difficult for me to find an instructor. Uh, and then I finally did it in the international relations department for one semester. And then the second semester, I found another professor in the Near Eastern Studies department. So I taught it one semester. And I remember the first day I had... Um, total anxiety. I was nervous. I was going to get up and basically talk to people my age as if I was their instructor. And I remember just getting up that day um, and, and speaking or lecturing or whatever. And I was so impassioned about this material that I thought it was deeply important that I, all that stage fright that I've had all my life just kind of went away. And it was then that I realized I had different calling. So I taught this course for one semester. I had 30 students. I taught it again as a 20-year-old. I had 60 students, and I taught it a third time before graduating, and I had 70 students. And that, that kind of, for me, gave me purpose because, you know, it was pre-law, and, and for me, that was just a way to have a practical livelihood, but was what really didn't have a meaning to me beyond that practicality. Living in the United States, seeing the dominant discourses about the Middle East and Islam, I understood that Americans really don't know this region and they have a lot of opinions about it. And more than that, I thought it was very dangerous that the US government was this powerful and it was doing stuff all around the world and its population was that uninformed about the US role around the world. History is under attack in the United States and white supremacy is its main adversary. By the end of 2022, eight states have passed laws restricting school curriculum around race gender, sexuality, American history, or inequality, with Florida imposing penalties of up to $10,000, according to the Washington Post. Critical race theory has been attacked by Republicans at all levels for the past several years, with white-led parent 
teacher groups in middle and high schools calling for critical race theory to be banned, even though it's not even taught at that level. Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida also recently blocked the new advanced placement AP course for African-American studies, the first new course proposed by the college board since 2014, claiming it violates the state's Stop Woke Act, which he signed into law last April. The college board spent over 10 years developing the course with colleges, universities, and high schools before piloting it in 60 schools last year. Ironically, DeSantis has a bachelor's degree in history from Yale. Just last year, a poll revealed that half of Americans, most of them white, said they do not believe racism and slavery should be taught in schools. So if Americans can't reckon with their own history, how can it begin to reverse its thinking of the United States colonial past, especially about Iran, which has been severely misunderstood and miscontextualized and United States mainstream media for years. Puya knew what he was up against when he stood before his fellow students at Berkeley teaching about Iran in the wake of 9-11. But he tried anyway, and 20 years later, he's still in the fight, hoping his contribution to the public discourse will be one of many voices that can help reverse decades of poor thinking about Iran. I see myself as part of the solution where I'm trying to educate and raise awareness amongst Americans so that maybe we could one day have a better understanding of what the U.S. government is doing around the world and maybe try to rein it in. Thank you for listening to the second episode of Liberating Iran. If you just started listening to the series, I recommend that you check out the first episode with the Saul Rod, where she discusses the political history of the Iran deal and the missed opportunities of the West to form better relations with Tehran's leadership. Now, a word from our sponsors. Financial support comes from Plowshares Fund, which has been very supportive during the production of this series. We also want to thank Outrider Foundation, which supports multimedia storytelling about nuclear threats and climate change. Learn more at Outrider.org. And we need Apple Podcast paid subscribers. Please look for the subscriber box on Apple Podcasts and sign up for bonus episodes and full interviews with our guests. Your financial support also helps us keep the show going. We spend lots of hours every week booking interviews, fact-checking, and editing the shows for your listening pleasure. You can also support us at PayPal, Venmo, and Cash App by finding us under Black Diplomats. You can go to the show notes and you'll find links where you can pay directly. We also want to thank Puya for fact-checking the details of this episode before we published it. He returned very detailed notes that helped us immensely. We use lots of news videos and articles to help tell the history of Iran and the politics of Iran in general. Some of the sources came from the New York Times, Washington Post, the Australian Broadcast Channel, ABC News, MSNBC, CNN, and other sources. We use Wikipedia as a guide that led us to the articles and academic papers that back up their page entries. We also use music by Tim Taj. 
please go and buy Puya's book, Contesting the Iranian Revolution, The Green Uprisings. Next week, in episode 3, you'll hear from Nahid Siamdost, who will talk to us about Iranian feminism, female musical resistance, and Iranian hip-hop music that has become the soundtrack of the current protests. Alright y'all, talk to you next week. Again, nigga, who said you couldn't dream no more? Buy guns, be buy guns, the buy guns and spray. Tired of biting my tongue, I say what I gotta say. My 